0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Growing Strong by Destroying Others to the Notable Men of the Foremost Nation and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 22, 2007. A few weeks ago at dinner, My son announced with mock sarcasm that he had, quote, just contributed $186 to another fighter jet. He then explained that he was referring to the federal taxes withheld from his summer paycheck. A few days later, the nonpartisan Congressional Research Service reported that America's burn rate for our wars in Afghanistan and Iraq is now $12 billion dollars per month way more than the 8.7 billion dollars per month only a year ago since September 11th 2001 congress has approved 610 billion dollars for the two wars the prophet amos wrote 2800 years ago but reading him this week felt like a blast of cold clean air maybe he could speak to America's militaristic empire today? Amos lived during the reign of the renowned King Jeroboam II, who reigned 41 years and forged a political dynasty marked by territorial expansion, aggressive militarism, and unprecedented national prosperity. The citizens of his day took their patriotic pride in their religiosity, their history as God's favored people, their military conquests, their economic affluence, and their political security. Amos's book starts in Chapter 1 with a foreign policy briefing that reads like an ancient version of the Nuremberg Trials. His affidavit charges Israel's enemies with horrific war crimes. Damascus threshed Gilead with sledges of iron teeth. Gaza took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. Tyre sold their prisoners of war into slavery and flaunted international treaties. Edom stifled all compassion and pursued its enemies with unchecked rage. Ammon, we we read ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. Moab burned as if to lime the bones of Edom's king. Amos's audience would have smugly cheered and jeered at his denunciation of these atrocities. Mutilation, scorched earth campaigns, slavery, depopulation ethnic cleansing, global treachery, torture, and the flagrant degradation of your victims. But Israel, says Amos, had overplayed its hand. They misread the signs of the times. Convinced of the nobility of their own nation and of the inferiority of foreigners, they found it impossible to understand How others might see them they considered their country superior in every way to the axis of evil that Amos reproached under Jeroboam Israel developed an exaggerated sense of exceptionalism which they then used to exempt themselves from universal standards that applied to their own nation as well as to their enemies like the minority report of an alternative news source, Amos spoke to their national delusions. He was the consummate outsider who preached from the lunatic, pessimistic, and unpatriotic fringe. He was blue-collar rather than blue-blooded. He was neither a prophet nor even the son of a prophet, but instead a farmer from Little Tacoa about 12 miles southeast of Jerusalem and 5 miles south of Bethlehem. The cultured elites of his day despised Amos as a redneck, and furthermore he was an unwelcome outsider. Born in the southern kingdom of Judah, Yahweh called him to thunder a prophetic word to the northern kingdom of Israel. Amos might have been a farmer, but his prophecy bristles with a withering critique of Israel's culture. He describes how the rich trampled the poor, how the affluent flaunted their expensive lotions, elaborate music and vacation homes with beds of inlaid ivory, fathers and sons who abused the same temple prostitute, corrupt judges who sold justice to the highest bidder, predatory lenders who exploited vulnerable families, and religious leaders who pronounced God's blessing on it all. With Israel at the peak of its power, and having many good reasons to believe that no disaster could befall it, Amos preached a counterintuitive and a culturally subversive message the country's disbelief, he said that they were no different than the pagan nations with their war crimes. Before God, they were equals. Amos spoke to average citizens in general, but he also spoke to the nation's leaders in particular, priests, judges, financiers, and state bureaucrats, those whom he calls in chapter 6, verse 1, the notable men of the foremost nation. Amos compared Israel to a basket of summer fruit that was not merely ripe but close to rotten. Chapter 8 verse 1. I imagine that few people listened to Amos. In a paroxysm of rage and in defense of the king Jeroboam, Amaziah the priest ran him out of town. And still Amos announced the end of Israel's empire. And that end came quickly. In 725 BC, the Assyrian king Shalmaneser occupied Israel for three years, crushed the opposition holdouts, and then deported the entire population. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 17. And so in 25 years, Israel went from being a regional power under Jeroboam II to a failed state under Shalmaneser. And so I wondered, could American empire fail like Israel? Or like Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, Great Britain, France, the Netherlands, the Soviet Union, China, Austria-Hungaria, and the Ottomans, all of whose imperial ambitions crashed in just the last hundred years? Or could they fail like the 20 case studies of societal collapse and disintegration studied by Jared Diamond in his book by the title, Collapse? Crawling through the tunnels of the pyramids at Giza, sitting in a Colosseum in Turkey built 2,000 years ago, Visiting churches hewn out of rock 800 years ago in the desert of Ethiopia, I've often wondered what will befall America. At 230 years young, we're barely a blip on the graph of world history. If Amos were among us today, what would he see? What would he say? Some critics have already begun to perform an American autopsy. Many of them diagnose imperial militarism as our primary malignancy. Unlike ancient empires, says Chalmers Johnson, American imperialism consists not of conquered peoples, not of conquered territories, but of military bases. Every year, the Pentagon issues what it calls the Base Structure Report. And in the Base Structure Report, the Pentagon says that America deploys about 500,000 military personnel and dependents to at least 725 military bases in 153 countries. Keep in mind that there are only 192 member states in the United Nations. The real total is probably close to 1,000 military bases overseas because the base structure report doesn't include secret bases nor officially so-called non-existent bases. America, our own home, houses 969 bases in all 50 states, and a politician who tries to close one of those bases commits political suicide. In any one year, says Colin Murphy of Vanity Fair, American forces will conduct so-called operations, quote-unquote, in some 170 countries. Our federal budget reflects the stratospheric cost of globalized state violence. According to the National Priorities Project, 28.5% 28.5% of every tax dollar that you send to Washington goes to the military. But it's even worse than that because much of the Pentagon budget, perhaps 40%, in all of the CIA budget is secret to all but a very few legislators. By comparison, education, according to the National Priorities Project, receives 4%, housing 2%, veterans 1.7 percent, and the environment 1.4 percent. And so in the year 2005 the United States accounted for 48 percent of the entire world's military spending. That was down slightly from 2003 when we spent more on the military than the rest of the world combined. Patriotic and self-serving propaganda insists that American militarism exists to spread freedom and democracy, to protect ourselves and others, to relieve suffering and to keep peace. Sometimes that's true, but other people point to our predatory economic policies as the ultimate rationale for our global hegemony. Some people call it militarized state capitalism or global military economic domination. Whatever you call it, America projects its overwhelming military might to assure uninhibited economic access. I was struck by this week's psalmist, who makes a very evocative connection between great wealth and great violence. We read in Psalm 52, verse 7, He trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. Economists warn that American militarism is unsustainable. Political scientists point to the unintended but entirely predictable blowback. Chalmers Johnson says, Nations reap what they sow. But America's global militarism is not only imprudent because it's impractical, it's wrong in principle because it's immoral. Christians who subscribe to the epistle for this week believe that God created all things and intends to reconcile all things through making peace through his son Jesus, Colossians chapter 1, 16 and 20. And so Christians ought to find the scale and scope of American militarism as nothing less than appalling. For further reflection, who might be the notable men of the foremost nation today? Amos chapter 6, verse 1. Or again, contemplate Psalm 52, verse 7. He trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. Number three, in what sense, if at all, is America what Noam Chomsky calls a failed state, a rogue state, an outlaw or terrorist state? Can you hazard a guess what America might be like a hundred years from now? What about 200 or 500 years from now? And finally, for further reading, on American Empire, see the trilogy by political scientist Chalmers Johnson. The first book was called Blowback, published in 2000. The second book is called The Sorrows of Empire, from 2004, and then more recently, Nemesis, The Last Days of the American Republic, published in 2006. For books this week, I review a book by Adam Hawkschild, Bury the Chains. Prophets and Rebels in the Fight to Free an Empire's Slaves. New York, Houghton Mifflin, 2005, 468 pages. Beginning in 1555 and lasting for 350 years, the British Empire bought, sold, and enslaved about 11 million African people. This required some 35,000 voyages along the so-called triangular trade route, buying slaves from African slave traders along the continent's west coast, depositing their human cargo mainly in the Caribbean to work on Britain's sugar plantations, but also to ports from Quebec to Chile, and then finally returning to England with imports for the empire. At the end of the 18th century, slavery was hardly unusual. It was, says Hawkeschild, the rule for most people in places on earth. What was unusual that it was that in the space of about 50 years, Britain outlawed the slave trade, and then a while later outlawed slavery itself. How did the unthinkable happen? How did an economic system that was so deeply embedded, so profitable, and so taken for granted as normal by almost everyone, disappear so swiftly? Hochschild describes British abolition as one of the most ambitious and brilliantly organized citizens' movements of all time. Many of the political means that we enjoy today were perfected back then investigative journalism into the real conditions of slave life, sugar boycotts, 519 petitions to the British Parliament with 390,000 signatures, public debates, media campaigns, and all sorts of everyday activism, progressive movements like women's groups who were far ahead of their time, missionaries who were despised by the plantation owners, British evangelicals, Methodists, and especially the culturally marginal Quakers all provided principal moral argument. And then the Herculean efforts of Thomas Clarkson, the parliamentary leadership of William Wilberforce, and the legal advocacy of the eccentric Granville Sharp all were essential. But Hochschild is careful to avoid the paternalism of self-congratulatory aristocratic benevolence. After all, when all was said and done, it was the slave-owning planters who were reimbursed for their so-called losses by the British government and not the slaves. Whenever possible, Hochschild allows the slaves to speak for themselves, like the remarkable Olaudah Equiano, whose 500-page best-selling autobiography provided a first-person narrative of what is still considered the best account of slave life, and, by the way, is still available today. And then again, Kwabna Autobah Kuwango's Thoughts and Sentiments on the Evil and Wicked Traffic of the Slavery and Commerce of the Human Species. He describes at great length the numerous slave revolts in which fearless and skilled leaders like Toussaint Louverture led slaves to free themselves and forced the British to face reality, however reluctant they were to do. In these violent and vicious slave revolts, the most beleaguered people on earth defeated the world's two greatest military powers, France and Britain in Haiti, and also in Jamaica. Bury the Chains joins Hawkschild's previous book, King Leopold's Ghost, about Belgium's plunder of the Congo. The stories are depressing but inspiring. For however dark these histories, however deep our national complicity, The narratives remind us that we're not fated to accept injustice to our fellow human beings. Whether in Iraq or Darfur, whether with malaria or HIV-AIDS, the abolition of slavery reminds us that effective movements of genuine social justice are possible. Adam Hawkschild, Bury the Chains, Prophets and Rebels, in the fight to free an empire's slaves. For film this week, I review a movie about crossword puzzles. The name of the movie is called Wordplay, from the year 2006. The excitement is palpable, gushed NPR's Neil Conan. And believe it or not, he was right. I wouldn't let my wife interrupt while I watched this film. After all, it was the championship round of the 28th Crossword Puzzle Tournament at the Marriott in Stamford, Connecticut. This whimsical documentary film introduces you to the world of word nerds who are addicted to the New York Times crossword puzzle. People appearing in the film like Bill Clinton and Bob Dole the Indigo Girls, and pitcher Mike Mussina of the New York Yankees. But the best takes are those about ordinary people, and according to the film, there are about 50 million puzzle heads out there, all of whom compete every year in Stamford. and also the so-called crossword constructors who create the puzzles with their dastardly clues. In any given year, the New York Times, for example, will use about 110 different puzzle constructors. Will Shorts, the crossword puzzle editor for the New York Times, looms large throughout this film. Thirty years ago, at Indiana University, where you could create your own major, he specialized in so-called enigmatology. If you want to compete at Stanford, you better sharpen your pencil. It takes only three to four minutes for the champion puzzlers to solve that bugger in your morning newspaper. Wordplay from the year 2006. And finally this week we've posted a poem by one of my favorite poets George Herbert. George Herbert lived from 1593 to 1633. The title of this poem is called simply, Aaron, and is a course about the priest Aaron in the Old Testament. Holiness on the head, light and perfections on the breast, harmonious bells below, raising the dead to lead them unto life and rest, thus are true Aaron's dressed profaneness in my head, defects and darkness in my breast, a noise of passions ringing me for dead unto a place where there is no rest. Poor priest, thus am I dressed. Only another head I have, another heart and breast, another music making live, not dead, without whom I could have no rest. In him I am well-dressed. Christ is my only head, my alone only heart and breast, my only music striking me even dead, that to the old man I may rest and be in him new-dressed. So holy in my head, perfect and light in my dear breast, my doctrine tuned by Christ who is not dead but lives in me while I do rest. Come people, Aaron's dressed. George Herbert. The poem is called Aaron. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, July 22nd, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.